please be seated. And as you take your seat, you can open your copy of the Word of God with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, beginning with verse 69 through 27, verse 10. Matthew 26, the passage is in your bulletin as the third reading this morning, so you can follow along there if you like. 1859, Charles Dickens wrote one of his famous novels, probably the most famous, A Tale of Two Cities. Well, I believe that Matthew's gospel, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us here in this passage a tale of two disciples. Matthew has a way of putting Peter and Judas back to back as two disciples who really failed. Two disciples that had flaws and two disciples that ended with very different uh, futures in their life. And Matthew has them sandwiched together at the end of chapter 26 and at the beginning of chapter 27, perhaps so that we might see this tale of two disciples and the contrast that I believe Matthew is seeking to draw between these two men. And that's what we'll look at this morning, very briefly, before we enjoy communion together. We'll look at two failures, two flaws, and two futures as we think about Peter and Judas. Let's pray and ask God to bless our time of study together. Heavenly Father, I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart might be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Father, we desire to see Jesus and him only. Forgive the preacher for his sins are many. Enable us by your Spirit to feast on you in our minds and our hearts, indeed throughout our entire lives. And help us to give you the praise and glory for all that you will do as we look into your word this morning. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first of all, I want you to notice two failures. and We can simply rehearse the story of what Nick read for us a few moments ago. First of all, Peter's denial. And then secondly, Judas' betrayal. We can see Peter's denial, his threefold denial, in verses 69 to 74, a young servant girl came and said to him, You are one of them. You are with Jesus. But he denied it before them all in verse 70. And he said, I don't know what you're talking about. <clears throat> Peter lied, and he denied knowing anything about the Lord Jesus and the circumstances surrounding him. And then another servant girl came, and we see in verses 71 and 72, she said exactly the same thing. And Peter lied again, and he denied it this time with an oath. It's a very dangerous thing to do. An oath, if you don't know, is basically calling down God's penal justice in the event that you are lying about something. And so he takes an oath, and he tries to distance himself once again from the Lord Jesus and from being identified as one of his disciples. And then a little later, some bystanders associated Peter's connection to Jesus on the basis of his accent. Apparently, those who came from Galilee had a different sort of accent. And Peter now 
began cursing and swearing, perhaps to put the biggest distance he could between this holy man, Jesus, and being identified as one of his disciples. He denied three times that he knew the Lord. He lied three times. And he finally ended his lies with swearing and cursing. Well, that's Peter's denials. Judas, on the other hand, we have betrayal. Back in verses 21 and through 25 in Matthew's chapter 26, the Lord Jesus made it clear that one of his disciples would betray him when they were taking the Passover supper together, which would institute the Lord's Supper. He said, one of you will betray me. And in that exchange, unknown to the rest of the disciples, Jesus looked at Judas, and Judas asked him, am I the one, basically? And Jesus said, yes, you have spoken it yourself. In fact, the betrayal was already underway. If you read verses 14 through 16, we learn that Judas went to the chief priests and the elders and said, what will you give me if I betray him to you? And the text says, from then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. See, unlike Peter's denial, Judas's betrayal was premeditated. It was planned and planned well. Finally, in verses 47 through 50, Judas led a large crowd with swords and clubs. And this was a mob that was actually established by the chief priests and the elders. And Judas betrayed the Lord Jesus with a kiss. And so we have two failures. And simply with a cursory reading or a cursory glance, we could say perhaps Peter's was worse than Judas's. I mean, Peter's was repeated, denying the Lord three times. However, it was done in a moment of weakness. Whereas Judas, his betrayal, as I mentioned already, was premeditated. Those are the two failures before us. I want you to notice, secondly, two what we might say Shakespearean uh, tragic flaws. Tragic flaws. I don't mean to suggest that these uh, men, Peter and Judas, had only one single flaw. Like all sinners, they had many flaws. Nevertheless, I believe we can trace these failures to some particular flaws. Just as in Shakespeare's plays, there's usually one tragic flaw that is easily identified. Consider Peter. I think of arrogance and self-sufficiency. Arrogance and self-sufficiency. Peter was confident that he would always be a faithful follower of Jesus. In fact, he said on one occasion, though all may forsake you, yet I will never forsake you. And all it showed was that Peter had a high view of himself and his strength. But Peter also had, consequently, a hard time believing Jesus' words. At various times. See, back in Luke 22, Jesus said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter spoke up without thinking once again in verse 33. Peter said, Lord, I'm ready to go to both prison and to death for you. Completely ignoring. The fact that the Son of God had just made a prediction 
and they always come true. In Matthew 16, at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus predicted his death once again to his disciples. And you remember that occasion. Peter, right after he made the greatest confession, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, he took Jesus aside and began to rebuke Jesus and said, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. You'll never face crucifixion. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. For he knew that the evil one was behind Peter's comments and thoughts. No, Peter didn't pay much attention to what Jesus had said. And that's what happens too often when we get a high view of ourselves. When we look at ourselves as autonomous. And by all accounts, Peter was a proud and impetuous man who was full of self-confidence. And like a wild stallion, he had to be tamed. Pride and arrogance and self-sufficiency are all dangerous things. In one sense, Peter thought he had arrived. But he was a long way from the man he would one day be. You know, it's so important for all of us as believers to keep the words of Jesus in mind in John 15. Without me, you can do nothing. A great deal of the Christian life is finding out how useless you are without Jesus. How meaningless things are without Jesus. And that you need him at all times. And that's why he told us to abide in him in John 15. Well, we have Peter's arrogance and self-sufficiency. When we turn to Judas, we have greed and materialism. Judas was essentially the treasurer of Jesus' band of disciples. He was most likely the most educated man, the most polished, but also he was greedy. He had charge of the money bag. He probably saw to it and volunteered first for that job. And we learn in John chapter 12 at the home of Lazarus and Mary and Martha that Mary got up and in an unselfish act, she began to anoint the Lord Jesus. Some of the Gospels say the disciples basically protested and saying, this could have been sown, sold and given to the poor, the money, the proceeds. Well, John's gospel identifies not all the disciples, but, G but Judas as the one who is saying it. And John always gives us little parenthetical notes. In fact, Judas said, this ointment could have been sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor. And John says he said this, that is Judas, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. He was a hypocrite and a thief. Earlier in this chapter, we see Jesus's, or Judas' greed and love of money plainly. As I've already mentioned in Matthew 26, 14 through 16, he went to the elders and the chief priests and said, what are you willing to give to me if I betray him to you? The Gospel of Luke adds, and Satan entered into Jesus, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve at that time. And so in summary, Judas was obsessed with and controlled by greed, materialism, and love of money. Like Peter, he never paid much attention to what Jesus said, and he said a lot about money and about greed and about trust in materialism. In Matthew 6.33, Jesus said, Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about what you shall eat or drink or with what you shall 
Clothe yourself. Seek first the kingdom of God. And he told other parables, like the parable of the rich fool. All he was about was money, materialism. But one night he died suddenly. And the Lord taught a powerful lesson through that. Well, Judas never paid attention to these things. Contrary to what the Apostle Paul would say later, Judas had his mind set on earthly, material, temporal things instead of heavenly and spiritual and eternal things. You can't forget Paul's words in 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And so we have two failures, two abject failures, but also two tragic flaws in these men. But we come to the third point, and that is the most important point, and that is two futures. What happened to Peter? What happened to Judas? Well, Peter, first of all, at the end of Peter's three denials in 74b, Peter hears a rooster crow exactly had Jesus had told him earlier. And immediately Peter remembers the Lord's words to him predicting his denial. I love the Gospel of Luke because it adds this. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. You imagine right at that moment. When Peter heard the cock crow and he began to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, and then he saw the piercing eyes of Jesus himself staring him eyeball to eyeball. And the text says he went out and he wept bitterly. You know, people can weep bitterly over their sinful behavior and still not repent. And although it's not explicitly stated in this text, we know that Peter expressed a godly sorrow in this bitter weeping, which ultimately led to an authentic repentance. You see, I think this is Peter's lowest and highest point in life. It's the lowest point because he was humbled and he began to get face to face with how weak he was and how he couldn't depend upon himself. He needed something infinitely stronger in his life, and that was the Lord Jesus. He came face to face not only with Christ, but through Christ he came face to face with his own sin, his failure, his weakness, his false sense of pride, his autonomy, and his self-confidence. This would be a moment Peter would never forget. And while it was his lowest moment, it was really the beginning point, the highlight of his life. You know, the Lord has to humble us in order to get our attention. And I don't believe Peter ever forgot again anything that the Lord Jesus said. And he never forgot again that his confidence had to be rightly placed in the Lord Jesus. Later on in John 21, we're told that the Lord Jesus reclaimed Peter at Lakeside. He was probably so embarrassed by what he had done, he went back to fishing. We don't know for certain. But Jesus came graciously and lovingly. And you know the story. He reclaimed him there at Lakeside, asking him three times, Do you love me? Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me? Years later, Peter would write two letters. And he would warn all of us to take care, lest we practice the same self-confidence and pride he found in himself. Listen to some of his words. 1 Peter 1.13, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. 
Be sober-minded. 1 Peter 5, 8, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And then 2 Peter 3, 17 and 18, Beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, lest you fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In summary, Peter had a future by the grace of God. He lived many years after this dark, dark moment, and he bore witness to the salvation that is in Christ all the way to his death. But not Judas. We learn of Judas's brief future and his tragic fate in the first part of Matthew 27, verses 3 through 5. Then when Judas had betrayed him, he saw that he had been condemned. He felt remorse, and he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Like Peter, Judas appears to come to his senses as the reality of what he'd done in betraying the Lord Jesus settles into his mind. I want you to notice something about Judas. He's like a poster boy for repentance, so it seems. Look at verse 3a. He's stricken in conscience. He felt remorse. 3b. He sought to make restitution. He returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders. Just like the Apostle Paul speaks of in 2 Corinthians 7, which we read this morning, Judas sought to correct his actions and make restitution. He was bothered by what he had done. Not only that, he confessed his sin, and he did it publicly. Look at the first part of 4a. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He acknowledged his sin and confessed it publicly. You know, in one sense, we might think here is a fine example of what it means to exercise biblical repentance. I mean, Judas appears to have all the right ingredients. He is uh, repentance, his sense of remorse is emotional, it's cognitive, and it is behavioral. He didn't simply feel something, he did something. And he also humbled himself and confessed his sin to the chief priests and the elders. And what a horrible picture that is. Those are the men who should have welcomed a confessing sinner. If I put Judas next to Zacchaeus, side by side, what do I see? I see a more thorough repentance in Judas than I do Zacchaeus. Or so it seems. But Judas did not repent. The material point is not what he felt or said or did. It is what he failed to do. He did not turn and rely on Jesus for forgiveness and restoration. You see, authentic repentance always goes hand in hand with saving faith. Repentance means a change of mind, a change of direction. And the object of our faith is critical. That is the Lord Jesus. And so repentance and faith are like twins. They always go hand in hand. And you cannot have one without the other. There are people that talk about faith, but they've never repented. And there are people that have exercised a form of repentance, but they're not trusting in the Lord Jesus to save them. And I want you to note the awful words in 4b. He came to these religious leaders who should have received him and given him comfort, and they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And Judas went away and committed suicide. He hung himself. You know, I've been reflecting on that for a long time, and I wonder, 
What is it that makes a person or leads a person to that point of desperation? Suicide. And I have to think it's one of two things. Number one, it's escape. My circumstances have gotten so bad, and I have no hope that I must escape. Or guilt. And a sense of guilt that is so deep and so strong. But not turning to Jesus, you do exactly what these religious leaders say. See to it yourself. I'm going to make atonement for my sin. And the wages of sin is death. And therefore, logically and reasonably, I need to end my life. As I seek to make atonement for my sin. You see, Judas sought to exercise repentance, but he only went halfway. And he ultimately tried to see to it himself. He tried to see to his own atonement. And you can never do that. I hope those words burn into your mind. Because that's exactly what Satan wants. He wants us to be a bunch of do-it-yourselfers. See to it yourself. But if you try to see to it yourself, either in terms of salvation or living the Christian life, you will always fail. There must be an unreserved trust and dependency upon the Lord Jesus at the point of salvation when you exercise faith. And then all the rest of your life, you learn how to abide in Him so that you enjoy the peace and the joy of having your sins forgiven. And you're set free in order to Serve others, not just be served yourself. And it's a supernatural thing. You see, repentance and faith are not part of the self-help or self-improvement move. You cannot improve yourself. It is a supernatural thing that Christ must do in our lives to save us and give us the gifts of faith and repentance. So don't go through life with that syndrome, the see-to-it-yourself syndrome. Now, a couple practical things we can learn from this before we take the Lord's Supper. Beware of the see-to-it-yourself syndrome when it comes to salvation and daily living. We have choices to make every day. As we read in Deuteronomy 30, Moses said, See, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity. Now choose life. While it's true that repentance is a gift from God, just like faith, it is equally true that we're commanded to obey the gospel. And not dilly-dally. We have a responsibility, ladies and gentlemen. God is absolutely sovereign. But we are responsible to respond to the gospel. A second application. Beware of counting on late repentance. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 6, Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Often we think, I'll repent of that later. And we begin to presume on God's grace. Listen to the words of J.C. Ryle. Quote, one penitent thief was saved in the hour of death that no man might despair, but only one that no man might presume. Let us put off nothing that concerns our souls, and above all, not put off repentance, under the vain idea that it is a thing in our power. It is not. Don't presume on God's grace. Another application, beware of developing a hard heart. By clinging to sin. You think about that in Pharaoh in Exodus. You know, God came and said, Moses, I'm going to do this. And Pharaoh's going to harden his heart. 
And even several times, God said, I'm going to harden his heart. And Pharaoh's heart got harder and harder and harder, even in the midst of God's miracles that he did. He sinned and sinned. I think of others in the Bible, like Lot's wife. She was told explicitly, don't turn back. When Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, she did. I think of Ananias and Sapphira, who paraded their righteousness and what they gave when they really were being hypocrites, and God struck them dead. You know, there is a sin against the Holy Ghost. We no longer care about spiritual things anymore. Once again, I have to rely on the words of J.C. Ryle, who I think gives a great definition of sinning against the Holy Spirit. It is this, quote, clear knowledge of the truth in the head combined with a deliberate love of sin in the heart. And we sandwich those things together, we are dangerously close. We certainly grieve the Holy Spirit. May we not sin against Him like that. And not going through life concealing. You know, sometimes we think, nobody else knows as I rationalize this sin or these sins in my life. But the Bible says in Numbers, be sure your sin will find you out. And if not in this life, in the next. Beware of these things. You don't want to be a Judas who falls away from the living God, who is judged and who end up in hell. No, the Bible has good news from the Psalms all the way through the Gospels. The Lord sustains all who fall, and He raises up all who are bowed down. He is infinitely loving and gracious and good whenever we come clean. And that is simply to say, Lord, I can do nothing for myself. I know that my heart is a cesspool of sin and I need to be cleansed. I not only want to turn away from my sin, I want to turn to the Lord Jesus. He is alive and I want to put my faith and trust in Him as the object of my faith. And I want you to clothe me in his righteousness and give me your good Holy Spirit so that I may be propelled and encouraged throughout life to follow the Lord Jesus in obedience. Peter did that. Have you? Have I? What is the evidence of our lives in this tale of two disciples? Who do we look like the most? Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you not only for this text, but the arrangement of it as we look at Peter and Judas together side by side. Lord, I pray earnestly that every one of us could easily identify with Peter. That though we are flawed, though we are sinful, that we're seeking your face, we want to be forgiven, and we desire to repent and turn toward Christ. Lord, make it so. And if there are others here today, Lord, any one of us who might be coddling sin, hiding sin, concealing sin, remind us that you, like you looked at Peter, look at us, eyeball to eyeball, and you see right through us, and you know the truth. Help us, Lord, to surrender to the Lord Jesus, that we might experience the joy of salvation and the forgiveness of our sin. Bless us now, Lord, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper and enjoy communion with our Savior. 
We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.